the introduction in verse 1 last week. We'll resume there. Here we go. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is therefore his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Guys, um, uh, last week I, in, we introduced out of verse 1 this whole idea of the weak and the strong and um, uh, the, um, <laughs> the so-called weak and the so-called strong. But I, I do want to point out as we start tonight, there is a legitimate um, category of weak and strong. Um, Paul, or the author of the book of Hebrews, addresses it in um, Hebrews 5 when he talks about, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers. He talks about there is a level of maturity, so consequently there is a level of immaturity that exists in the body of Christ. Um, but that is a level, that is a... That is a um, a, a scale that's determined by one's knowledge of God. It is not determined by some kind of um, uh, ceremonial or societal custom. And that's what's in view in Romans 14. Not, uh, when Paul's speaking about the weak and the strong here, he speaks almost derisively. He is not speak, or the author of Hebrews is not speaking derisively about it in the, um, in the book of Hebrews. The other thing that I want to say is, I introduced the subject last week of judging. That is, um, you, know, you know, the whole idea is, uh, you know, the, accept the one who is weak, welcome him. And I said that the other, that uh, instead of doing that, what uh, often tends to occur is that the, the body of Christ is guilty of judging. And by the way, I, I, I came to that because that's, that's in the back of Paul's mind. Look at verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment. Look at verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment? It's in the back of Paul's mind. That is that one of the illegitimate responses to uh, this this whole idea of um, uh, non-essential items is that judgment often arises. Judgment often occurs and, and, and illegitimately so. So having said that, I just wanted you to know that that whole idea of judgment was not something that I introduced into the text. It's right there in the text for us. Now, we we come to verse 2, and verse 2 is an illustration of this weakness um, that Paul has in mind in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, then he gives you an example uh, of an item, (coughs) excuse me, uh, where this weakness may show up. He says in verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, guys, um, but, but before we are too harsh in here, let me just explain a couple of things. Um, imagine that you're a Jewish convert and you have been raised um, uh, on Jewish or Jewish Mosaic law all of your life where there are some rather strict uh, dietary restrictions. You know, and, and so then you become a Christian and you're introduced to this, to this new thing 
it would be very understandable for you to be somewhat slow in your enjoyment of all the liberty that you have in the gospel. Even today, ladies and gentlemen, Judaism is, uh, still holds on to some, some dietary laws. You've heard of being kosher and not being kosher, but um, even Peter had a problem over the whole issue of what he should and what he shouldn't eat, which comes to light in the book of Galatians, guys. But Jews were brought up under strict dietary laws. And so the question of diet gets introduced as something that tends to disrupt the unity that is supposed to exist among Christians. Remember, the whole theme of this thing is Christians, you know, getting along, you know? And so now he has given us a specific, a specific idea of what it is or one of the issues that has come up, that would come up, um, that would, would break or tend to uh, rattle the, the fellowship that Christians are supposed to enjoy or the unity that we're supposed to enjoy. Now, guys, let, let's talk for a minute about Old Testament food laws and, and um, um, why were those in place in the first place? Oh, um, there's all kinds of different opinion as to why there was Old Testament uh, food laws. The reason that it becomes an issue is because they're gone. They no longer exist. So what was the purpose of the Old Testament food laws, and um, why did they disappear? Well, first of all, guys, there's all kinds of different opinion as to why they existed in the first place. One suggestion is that there is... Um, there's sanitation that's in, that's, uh, in view. For instance, as you know, uh, pork could communicate a little disease called trichinosis. And so one of the things that God was doing was protecting his people from diseases because of, so he told them not to eat that. Another suggestion is that, um, that uh, it was the distinction between the clean and the unclean that God wanted to inculcate amongst his people. Because the, uh, Israel was the clean, Gentiles were the unclean, and he's just trying to teach a principle between the clean and the unclean. There is, um, there is also those who suggest that there's a political reason. That is, that these dietary laws would make Israel very distinct, very unique, very separate from all the other nations. Um, you can take your choice as to why those, um, uh, those dietary laws were in place, but... When you come to the New Testament, and interestingly enough, I was asked this question Sunday morning. Where did they go? Where did those dietary laws go? Why did they go? Um, and, and, and I want to mention just a couple of things that I, I, I hope you'll find uh, somewhat beneficial. Um, but uh, one of the answers is, why did the, the, uh, the dietary laws go? Guys, um, law in the Old Testament is, is broken up into... Um, um, three categories, three kinds of law in the Old Testament. There was moral law, there was civil law, and there was ceremonial law. Um, the moral law is the things that we would call like the Ten Commandments, okay? Civil law would be like, uh, well, one of the laws you face is that you stone homosexuals. Uh, ceremonial law would be all this stuff that you, that you bring turtle doves, that you sacrifice a lamb, that you have a sin offering, that you have a thank offering, you have a free walk, all that business, all that ceremonial stuff. And, and most would suggest that uh, the only, one, only kind of law that is still in place is this one, and these two have passed into disuse. Why? 
Well, first of all, in terms of civil law, well, let's, let's start with ceremonial law. Ceremonial law is this, this whole idea of what you brought to worship for your sin and the shedding of a lamb's blood, et cetera, et cetera. And most would suggest that ceremonial law has, um, um, has passed into disuse because Christ has finished his sacrifice and there is to be no more shedding of blood. Okay? Then in terms of civil law, like you stoned them, uh, most would put these, these food laws under civil law. And that civil law has passed into disuse because of the, the destruction of the temple and the disappearance of the theocracy. Okay? You know what the theocracy was? It was really only under David and, Paul, David and Solomon. So once Israel as a theocracy disappeared, these civil laws passed into disuse. And once Jesus had completed his work, these ceremonial laws passed into disuse. Uh, these civil laws, including these food laws. Um, but the, the moral law is still binding, like thou shalt not commit adultery. That's still binding. I hope you know that. <laughs> um, but um, th- that's one suggestion. That is, to what happened to those dietary laws. There is another suggestion, guys, as to why the dietary laws are no longer in place. And the suggestion is that the new covenant um, uh, broadened its um, scope to include Gentiles who were considered the unclean. And so once the new covenant included the unclean, then the distinction between clean and unclean foods was no longer needed and necessary. Okay. I don't know whether that was beneficial for you, but that's um, in terms of some of those Old Testament dietary laws. Now, do you find that very, I mean, do you find all that difficult to relate to, the whole idea? Well, I mean, why would you people fight over food? I mean, why would you fight over what you eat and what you don't eat? I mean, I mean what, what idiots would fight over what you eat and what you don't eat? I mean, we would never do something that stupid, now would we? Yes, yes, we do. You know, have you ever met a vegetarian? They can be very self-righteous. You know, uh, I'm a whole lot uh, holier than you are because you eat meat. Or here's my favorite, guys. This is for you ladies. This is just for you ladies. Breastfeeding. I mean, if you're really, really spiritual, you bre- do you know how many mothers say this to me in a year? I'm just such a terrible mother. Oh, because I hadn't... Chicken nuggets for my kids. You know, I, I guess you're supposed to be nursing at age seven. Um, right before junior high, you can stop. <clears throat> you know, guys, when, when we were in Ocala, Florida, the whole idea of breastfeeding took on this whole spiritual overtone. And I mean, uh, that, that was the, the really spiritual people. They nursed. If you didn't nurse... We had women in... You ask my wife, this is not the truth. We had women who would sit on the fourth row of that church in Ocala, Florida, and nurse their babies while I was trying to preach. <laughs> well, that was somewhat distracting for me, but I felt sorry for the poor guy sitting next to him when all this <laughs> was going on. <laughs> you know, but it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a note of. It was a mark of spirituality. You know, guys, um, 
if you if, if I'm lying, I'm dying. When when Susie and I went to a seminary, um, we lived in a little house. It's gone now. Uh, they <laughs> they tore it down. I mean, it was a it was a shack. We um, we paid sixty two dollars and fifty cents a month for this house that we lived in, and we painted it and we cleaned it up and we just it was home for us for three years. We loved it. But it was right on the seminary campus. It was right next to an exit that, uh, you know, went out. It was right up in the front. But while we were at seminary, they built some married student housing in the back. And, you know, the the campus was, you know, lots of acres. And and so way back there in the back, they built these, these, uh, these apartments for married students. It was a good thing, you know. You could walk to class and your family was right back there, you know, that you could see them at lunch and all that business. And, and, um... Uh, back there in that married student housing, I don't know what happened, but it was odd. Every fad that you can possibly imagine, if, it's, if it got back there, it swept the entire student housing. Like um, Tupperware parties. You had one Tupperware party, honey, and you had 40. And if you had one, you got invited to 40. Fortunately, we lived up in the front, um, but um, premier jewelry, you have one, you have them, but the, the, guys, we were poor as church mice, we didn't have two, and, these, and they had these pots and pan party, I mean, these really fancy pots and pans, and, and the big thing became, well, they had all the parties with the pots and the pans, and the big thing became Making your own baby food. Now, if you were really spiritual, you made your own baby food. Of course, you had to buy the $12,000 worth of pots to, to, <laughs> to make your own baby food. But I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, it became a badge of spiritual honor. Because I made my own baby food. How does that happen? How does, how, does, how does it become a mark of spiritual attainment based on what I do or don't eat, guys? Um, folks, God is not concerned about what you eat. Maybe how much, but um, what concerns him is what comes out out of your heart. That's very clearly stated in Mark 7 and Matthew 15. Food doesn't defile you. What goes into you doesn't defile you. It's what comes out of you that defiles you. The issue is not what you intake. The issue is what you spit out in terms of behavior, in terms of language. And and to make baby food a mark of spiritual maturity. Where, where, how insane can we be that we would think that if we, that somehow, if you were adept at nursing your children, you were somehow more spiritual than those who had difficulties or didn't want to do it at all. How does that happen? How can the body of Christ 
Guys, eating nor drinking. And by the way, verse 2 is not about drinking, but drinking comes up in verse 21. Hot dog. That should upset some of you. Um, But eating is the specific in verse 2. Eating and drinking are not the grounds upon which God accepts me. Right? Everybody agree? Sure. Then how did it ever become a grounds upon which we accepted one another? Or learned to value one another? Or learned to estimate one another? Or judge one another? Based on whether we made our baby food or we bought those little bottles of Gerber's. How does that happen? I I, I think I've got a suggestion, but we'll get to it in just a second. Um, Guys, the unclean heart can be changed, but not via your diet. It is changed by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. But one of the great issues, folks between Judaism and even today. And and, um, this is a term that confuses people. But Judaism, or what I like to call religion, always majored in the externals. And Christianity majors in something internal. One of the classic mistakes, ladies and gentlemen, of Pharisaism in the New Testament is they thought that something from the outside could defile me from the outside in. Remember in, in Luke 15, uh, the, 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 the chapter about the prodigal son? You remember how it opens, don't you? It opens in verses 1 and 2 with the Pharisees and the scribes complaining about Jesus because he ate with sinners. Because their idea was, you know, if those people rub on me, I might get some of that on me. Because religion is always from the outside in. It's always, it's never, but ladies and gentlemen, the problem is not you rubbing up against me. The problem is your heart versus mine. Guys, um, how does this happen? Here's my suggestion. Take it or leave it. If we had any idea how impure our own hearts are, we would be far less inclined to, to scorn and judge other believers based on that foolishness. By the way, guys, this is only one of the foolishnesses. Diet. We're going to get to lots of others. I mean, Paul does. If we only knew the potential for wickedness in our own hearts, you know, um, that's how I think it happens, by the way. How, how, does, how does a group of people who are preparing for the gospel ministry begin to determine that making your own baby food is a mark of spiritual maturity? It's because we, we haven't yet. And, you know, Jesus talks about that. You know that, that story? It's really kind of a funny story. It's in um, uh, um, Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5. And he talks about, how is it that you can see that speck in your, you know, get that speck out of your friend's eye when you got that baseball bat in your own? You know, it, it, I always love to picture that thing. It's like it's going like going to an optometrist, 
and you're sitting there and you say, well, I got a little problem with my eye here, Doc. And, and he's got his back to you over there and, and he's fiddling around with some of the little dials or something. And, and, um, and you're saying, well, I got this problem. And, and all of a sudden he turns around and he's got a baseball bat sticking out of his eye. And he's about to fix you with the speck. Guys, the point of that little parable is we all got baseball bats in our eyes. If we knew the depth of our own depravity, we would be a whole lot less inclined to make quick judgments about what people, oh, she doesn't, she doesn't breastfeed her, her baby. That's just terrible. You know, guys, I'm not against breastfeeding. I'm sure it's a wonderful thing. I'm sure it's the best thing. But it is not a mark of spiritual maturity. Nor is homemade baby food. You want to make your baby food? (laughs) Knock yourself out. But it is not a mark of spiritual maturity. You're a vegetarian? Great. Knock yourself out. But it is not a mark of spiritual maturity. God does not accept me on that basis, nor should we... Um, make that a, um, an, an item that becomes important, guys. Um, keep reading with me in verse 3. Um, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God is welcoming. Here's my point, guys. Not only is it true that the so-called strong, now those would be the Gentiles. You know, the Gentiles who came into the gospel or embraced the gospel and just, oh, you know, hallelujah. Um, And then they looked at those Jews who were getting converted and they think, what's your hang-ups, buddy? Not only were the so-called strong prone to pass a judgment on those idiots, but the weak, or, or yeah, the weak were also addressed by Paul because they too were prone to pass judgments on the so-called strong. Um, the strong can be guilty. Uh, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Okay, so don't let the, the strong one despise the weak one. And by the way, Don't pass judgment on the strong one if you're the weak one. Because both are guilty of of the same kind of thing. The attitude of the weak towards the strong could be matched by as equally a bad an attitude of the strong versus the weak. Because both, for some reason, tend to feel superior. I'm superior because I did this and I didn't do that. What's the, what's the this and the that, ladies and gentlemen? Plug it in. Um, I'm superior because I memorize verses. Well, it's a good thing to memorize verses, ladies and gentlemen. But it doesn't make you spiritually superior. Um... Gang, gang, it's, it's, it's the pride, it's the danger that Paul warns us about concerning pride of knowledge. You remember in, in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, um, 
knowledge puffs up. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a converted Gentile, and, and, um, and I've got all this freedom um, now that my Jewish converted friends don't have. <laughs> I'm just a little bit, I've got, a, I've got an insight that those poor slobs don't have. And therefore, I'm, uh, a, I'm superior. Ladies and gentlemen, that too, um, I've been uh, a party to. My own um, theological system. Uh, I, I'm a reformed thinker. I think most people in this room know that. I'm a reformed thinker. But there's, not, there's nobody more guilty of um, disdaining um, those without such precious knowledge as are reformed thinkers such as myself. G- guys, it's... It's pride in knowledge, a knowledge of my freedom in Christ or knowledge of my theological system that's better than yours. It's, it's, all, it's all false foundations, guys. Um, so for my strong brethren who are here tonight, um, for those of you who consider yourself Um, in the category of the strong. Um, Let me speak to you uh, as we close this evening. Just a couple of... um, Just a couple of... Guys, um, our our setting is different. We're not dealing with Jewish converts coming into the church for the first time mingling with Gentiles. That's what Paul is dealing with. What we tend to deal with, at least at Grace Evan, are those who have come into a position known that we love to talk about, a position of grace. We want to be a grace-based church with a grace-based ministry. And so those of us who have come to know the beauties and the liberties of grace can be and tend to be pretty hard on those who are still bound up with some kind of legal tendencies that they picked up in their previous church experiences. And so those of us who have um, uh, drunk deeply from the fountain of grace, the strong, Um, we tend to have somewhat of a superior attitude to those who are still kind of wrestling around with their legal tendencies, the weak. Now, to you who consider yourself one of the strong, I've got a couple of closing comments, and then we'll resume this next week. But, guys... um, you know, I used this illustration last week. I thought it was a good one, and I'm going to use it again. If someone were to get converted here at Gracie Van, who had just come out of the occult, and, um, and we were to try and convince them that what they really need to do is go out and see all six Harry Potter movies, um... It would be somewhat abusive. 
Can you understand how somebody who has come out of the occult would have probably more trouble with movies like that than the rest of us who didn't come out of that? Can't you see? Or how about this? Let's say you've just come to Christ and you've been an alcoholic. And some of you really want to um, demonstrate the great beauties of our liberty as you celebrate your freedom to order a bottle of wine at supper Friday night. Can you see how that would be somewhat of an abuse and a misuse of that which is so beautiful? Guys, pushing people further and faster than they are taught by the Holy Spirit to go will do more damage than good. Gang, um, Christians are seldom argued into a new view. The Holy Spirit will bring them there at his own pace. Now, um, to my um, fellow um, grace abuser, um, we need to be reminded of this. First of all, that other Christian doesn't answer to us. We feel all of these wonderful liberties that, that we have learned, that we have in Christ Jesus. And you can't understand why they don't want to go to the movie with you. Or you can't understand why they have such reluctances to drink with you. Um... Just know this, ladies and gentlemen, the conscience is not answerable. The conscience is answerable to God, not us. Though our position may be a right position, it can be an abuse of the position to somehow mistreat the weak. Guys, God is the Lord of the conscience. So the rest of us, need to stay off his throne. By the way, I'm speaking for the moment to the strong, or the so-called strong. But the weak can be just as guilty, and we'll come back and we'll talk to them later. So the first thing that I would just plead for, for us who consider ourselves set free by the beauties of grace, there's a good deal of abuse that goes on in the name of grace, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we are accepted on the basis of grace. Yes. So, we are to accept that way. On the basis, not of the week's performance, but on the basis of grace. Don't use grace as a cover for your own licentious living. I had lunch with a, <clears throat> a young man the other day, and, and I, I am, I'm excited about him. He's the new RUF guy at, um, at the University of Memphis. And if you've got students at the University of Memphis, you ought to send them over there pretty quick. 
But he said some things to me which were so dear to my heart, and it was interesting that he learned them at the age of 32, and, and it wasn't at the age of 32 that I learned them. But I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, in the name of grace, a strong folk, in the name of grace, Christians are living lives that have very little difference to that of a non-Christian, all in the name of grace. It's not grace, ladies and gentlemen. It's licentious behavior. I think I told you this before, but um, I know seminarians. Well, actually, I don't know them. I don't know them personally. I don't want to overstate Seminarians who are somehow justifying having a Bible study at Hooters. I don't know how you justify that. Um, gang, our, our maturity in the, in the beauties and the liberties that are ours in Christ, our grasp of the great freedoms that are ours in Christ called grace cannot become your permission to go live some kind of ungodly lifestyle saying that's that's grace it's not grace ladies and gentlemen and by the way It wasn't I who said this. It was the Apostle Paul who said, um, For you were called to freedom, brothers. And and let me tell you this, oh dear Gracie Van, brother and sister. I will fight for your freedom in Christ Jesus with every fiber of my being. It's something that I absolutely love about the beauties of grace is the freedom that we have. But Paul says, you were called to freedom, brothers. And then he says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So, ladies and gentlemen, you who consider yourself the strong, one of the tendencies, one of our tendencies, is that we tend to take that 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 position of grace, we tend to take it way beyond where it's supposed to take us, and in so doing, abuse those on the way. Those are admonitions for the strong. But Paul makes clear that uh, there are some some mistakes that the weak make as well, and we'll look at those next week. Let's pray. Our Father... Uh, We are grateful for this gospel that sets us free from all foolish um, notions that we can perform our way into your good graces, that our behavior is what saves us. Um, We're glad to be set free to a gospel of pure grace that tells us that it is not our performance that saves us, but it is the performance of Jesus Christ that saves us. But in response to that liberty that is ours, oh God, would you guard us from using our liberty in such a way that we abuse fellow believers? Would you uh, prevent us 
from becoming so intoxicated with our own liberties that we care not for the damage that is done to those who who could be weaker in grace than we. Might we manage and maintain our great standings in relationship to you through Jesus Christ in such a way that the body of Christ is drawn ever closer and ever deeper in love with one another. Might our freedoms never be a cause, never be the reason why Christians are divided. Guard us from that, O God, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and good night. See you next week, hopefully, Lord willing.